Well, hey, everybody. It is great to see you. Good to be together. Good to have the chance to dig back into God's Word. I've greatly been enjoying our time in Revelation. Looking forward to get back into that, but welcome to all of you. Welcome to those of you checking this out online or in our classic venue or on the Moon Campus. It's uh, just good to be together, even though in different places, one church, many different locations. So, hey, do you remember these? Yeah, right. Uh, who can forget, right? What are they called? Cicadas, that's what they're called. And depending on where you live, every 13 or 17 years, these cicada come out and they sort of are this infestation that's all around you for a period of time and they have that ear-numbing screech that's always going on. It kind of sounds like what it would be if all of us collectively ran our fingernails down a chalkboard. That, that's exactly what it's like, and as horrible as that is, they say that they are not harmful at all to, to humans or to pets. That is, except when one lands on you, and then you go into convulsions trying to get the thing off of you, right? And you run into trees, into walls, and you hurt yourself doing that, but otherwise, I guess they aren't harmful. But depending on where you live, this is something that is coming your way. Now, fortunately, here in Western PA, we just had the cicadas come through a few years ago, and, and so we're good to go for a while. But uh, that's not the way that it is everywhere, because throughout the U.S., they come out at different times in different places. And actually, this year, there are two different broods that are coming out at the same time. And they're actually going to overlap in portions of Illinois and Indiana. And they say that there are going to be in excess of a trillion cicada flying around when this happens. And if you're in Illinois and in Indiana, those portions, you can just imagine what that would be like. And because they come out every 13 and 17 years, these are two prime numbers. And because of that, it doesn't line up except every 221 years. And this is the year. This year. The last time it happened was 1803. Thomas Jefferson was president. It was the year of the Louisiana Purchase, and it was the last time you could go to a Kansas City Chiefs game and not see a cutaway of Taylor Swift. So that's kind of where we are this time, right? And this is what's going on. So if you are in Indiana or Illinois this spring, it's kind of mid-May through June, right, in that category, it might feel a bit like uh, the apocalypse might be happening. In fact, I read one article that said, prepare for the apocalypse, prepare for torment and persecution. I thought, yeah, I know it's not going to be very fun, and I don't particularly want to go there at that time, but persecution? That really sounds a little over the top, especially when you come to see what our text for today has to say about what persecution actually is. Today we're coming back to our study through the book of Revelation. We just got this started a few weeks ago, and uh, we're calling this Revelation the Blessing and the Promise. And we've been digging into this, and we've made it into the section that talks about the seven different churches of Revelation. And today we're going to be talking about the church that is found in a place called Smyrna. Smyrna. So take your journals, take your Bible, go ahead and open up to Revelation chapter 2. That's where we're going to be. Revelation chapter 2 beginning in verse 8 today. There's an outline in your bulletin that might help you to follow along with where we are and what's going 
on. Be good to have that opened up. Now, in Revelation 1, when we got this started, we saw there, among many other things, that there was this description that's given to us of what's going on in heaven, and specifically looking at the glory of God. And it was a very stirring moment to, to read through and to consider all of who Jesus is and His glory in heaven, even today as we anticipate, as we think about who He is. We saw Him there. We saw the beauty of who he was. And in each case, we saw that that description of who he is is actually drawn then into the introduction of the different churches. And we're going to see more of that today as we go. And part of that beautiful description he's spoken of is walking around among the seven golden lampstands. And the seven golden lampstands represent what? The churches, those seven churches. And so today we're going to start to look at the second of those. Last week we looked at Ephesus. We saw in Ephesus that said that they were hardworking, that they understood the scriptures, but they had lost their first love. Well, today we come to Smyrna. It's a very interesting church because even though most of the churches have something good and something bad, a strength and a weakness that is mentioned, actually Smyrna is one of two churches where Jesus doesn't say anything negative about them at all. Very interesting. And we're going to go ahead and take a look more deeply at that here as we go. So we're simply talking about the message to Smyrna. Just very simple, very straightforward what we are going to be doing here today. And as we saw last time, these letters, these messages in chapter 2 and 3 of Revelation to the seven churches, that these are messages that are written to real historical churches, and there's much that is spoken about them for their benefit, but it's not just for them. There's also a benefit that comes to the one who has read this all the way down through the ages. Many, many churches down through the ages can learn from exactly what is spoken here, including our own, that there's an application for who we are in our own setting here today, and we're going to talk about how that impacts us as we go. Now, one of the things that we said early on is that in order to help us interpret the book of Revelation, which sometimes can be difficult, one of the things that will be a major help for us is to consider aspects of context. And specifically, we've mentioned two of those. One of those is the historical context, and the other one is the biblical context. And so what I want to do for a few moments here is to talk about the historical context of this city, this church in Smyrna. So let's talk about the intro to Smyrna. The intro to Smyrna. The city of Smyrna was located about 35 miles north of Ephesus, the church that we looked at last time. It was known for its beauty, its importance as a thriving city here, a port city on the coast of Asia Minor. In fact, it was such an impressive town that it had earned, or it was called by the moniker, the Crown of Asia. That's how special it was. Kind of like we today refer to wampum as the crown of Pennsylvania. You know, it's very much the same sort of thing that is going on here. Very impressive place. And it actually continues to exist today. Smyrna continues to exist today. It is now known by a different name. It's known by the name of Izmir. Izmir, and you can see it here, it's a thriving metropolis sort of city. Carolyn and I had the opportunity to be there some years ago, and I can attest to its beauty. I can attest to the spectacular nature of this city there in that region. Smyrna was founded in 10, or yeah, about the 10th century BC, actually about the time that King David was roaming around. Smyrna was already in existence at that point. 
It was a thriving city even way back then until about 600 B.C. when the Lydian king, Eliates, came in and he attacked and destroyed the city and left just the smallest little remnant. And that's how it was for the next couple hundred, about 250 years until Alexander the Great comes on the scene and he has a dream. And in his dream, it's like, you should rebuild Smyrna. And he does. He rebuilds the city of Smyrna in the 4th century. And because of where they were and where they got to, the the city kind of took on this posture and this pride about once being dead, but then coming back to life. Which sounds kind of familiar to you, right, as you think about what Jesus has done. And in fact, even as we come to the, what he says here in this message to Smyrna, we see that same sort of language being used, interestingly enough. If, in fact, let's go ahead and take a look at it. Revelation 2 and verse 8 is where our passage picks up. Here's what it says. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words are the, of the first and the last who died and came to life. As we talked about last week, the message to each of the seven churches follows a formula. And you can see that formula here. Uh, you look at it once again. And it begins with the address. That's where it gets started. And in each of these seven messages, the address is always going to go back to Revelation chapter 1 and the description of Jesus in heaven, his glorified self. And it's going to pull a piece of that forward and use it in the address. We saw that last week. We see it again here as well. And in this case, the picture that we are having pulled forward from Revelation chapter 1 comes in verse 17 and 18 of Revelation 1 where it says this, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. So that's the piece that they pulled forward out of, that Jesus chose to pull forward out of the description in heaven and use here in this address. You saw it as we read verse 8, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. So they're pulling it forward, but at the same time, it's also a look back. We've talked about how there's so many different allusions to the Old Testament. Well, here's another one. It points us back to several places, actually, in the Old Testament that say the same thing, including a place like Isaiah chapter 44 that links Jesus to the Father in saying this. It says, I am the first and I am the last. Beside me, there is no other God. There is no God. Now, this is a very powerful statement, especially here in Smyrna, because Smyrna was a place where they worshiped dozens of gods. Dozens of gods. Zeus, Aphrodite, Dionysius, the emperor Domitian. In fact, they applied with the Roman government to be the one place that could actually build a temple, a temple to the emperor uh, Tiberius, and they were granted that honor. But now this message is given to this church, and the message that we have here is that there is no other God. How do you think, do you think there's going to be any tension in town when you've got everybody who's worshiping all these gods and the Christians who are saying, no, 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 there's only one God? I think absolutely you can anticipate some tension. And just as meaningful is the statement that Jesus died and he came back alive forevermore. This is significant because of the message to Smyrna. The message to Smyrna is one of 
difficulty and suffering and persecution. And so the fact that Jesus himself has been through that is going to be important. And so we're going to go ahead and take a look at some of this persecution. We're going to understand what Jesus has to say because there's an encouragement to be found here, not just for the church of Smyrna itself, but for us as well. So let's dig into this. And here's the first truth. It's that when persecution comes, you are not alone in your struggle. When persecution comes, a truth for us, you are not alone in your struggle. The struggle the church in Smyrna was going through comes from several different directions, and he describes it here for us. In verse 9, you get a feel for it. It says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. The cultural landscape in Smyrna was running in opposition to much of what this church stood for. There are moral issues, there are theological issues, there are worship issues. We've already seen the fact that they are worshiping all these different gods. And the more that the believers spoke out about their beliefs, the more that they were opposed. And it says here that they are dealing with poverty. And they were. They were a very poor people. See, there were trade guilds there in the city. And if you were going to do well financially. It's kind of a, you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. And in these trade guilds, you kind of had to help one another out. Well, nobody's helping the Christians out because of the Christians' perspective on who God is. There's only one God. We're not going to participate in your emperor worship. We're not going to participate in your worship of these other gods. And so everybody was standing against the Christians. And so they didn't have the opportunity to carry on business like everybody else did. Nobody was working to assist them in getting a leg up. And as a result, the Christians were very, very poor there in Smyrna. This is the setting that they found themselves. Now, it's interesting that Jesus says in that context, I know your tribulation and your poverty, parentheses, but you were rich. But you were rich. The church's faithfulness led to this poverty and tribulation for them in the moment, but at the same time, they have this enormous close fellowship with God. They have this blessing spiritually that comes from God, being in the place exactly where God intended them and desired them to be in terms of the the spiritual nature of their relationship with God is soaring even in the midst of their poverty. In contrast, you've got the church of Laodicea, which is the last of the seven churches. We'll get to that eventually. It's at the end of chapter three. You can read ahead for some uh, extra credit reading if you want, but you've got that church there who thought of themselves as a rich church, that they've got everything going on, and here's Jesus' assessment of them says this, for you say, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, this is the church of Laodicea, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Why don't you just say it like it is, Jesus? Don't hold back, right? Man, he lays them out there. When you read something like that, it's like, man, those people. But what we need to do is we need to say, how do I fit in? We need to do our own evaluation of where we would find ourselves on this spectrum. If Jesus were here, how would he assess you? How would he assess us as a church? I pray about this, that God might be pleased with what he would find here in our midst for all of us. We have to ask, is there anywhere in our life where you would shrink back from living out the fullness of your faith because of what it might cost you in terms of the favor of other people, in terms of maybe your advancement in your career and at work, 
Maybe in your accumulation of wealth, is there ever a time when you shrink back, when you don't really wear, here's who I am in Christ on your sleeve? Where you hold back because you're afraid it's just not going to be very advantageous to you in whatever that setting is? Here you've got this church in Smyrna who is not receiving any criticism from Jesus because of the way that they're living, and the way that they're living is they're just putting it out there. They don't care what anybody thinks. They know that it's leading them to poverty, and they're going to do it anyway. And this is convicting, because I can think of times where I've shrunk back, because I was afraid of something that it might mean for me if I were to go out on the limb in that sort of way. And sometimes it's not even that big of a limb, or that small of a limb. We need to evaluate, because what Jesus is praising this church for is their willingness to be bold and to step out and to communicate the gospel all around them. It's a beautiful thing. There are going to be challenges that are going to come. In fact, Paul says to Timothy, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We can expect that. And if there's not ever any, we have to ask ourselves, are we really living fully for Christ? Back in verse 9 of our passage, it also speaks to the fact that the church is experiencing slander from the Jews. Now, many of the people who were making up the churches, Paul would go and he'd preach in the synagogue first, and, and many people would come to faith in Jesus, and so there are a lot of Jews who are now converted to Christianity who are making up these churches. But there are a bunch of other Jewish people who are Jewish really only ethnically. They're not ones who are following Yahweh. They're not ones who are living out something like the faith of Abraham. They're just present, and who they are in cahoots with is the Roman government. And there were certain privileges that the, these ethnic Jews were getting from the Roman government and certain things that they didn't have to do and exemptions that they were given. And the Roman government saw the Christians as being just an offshoot of Judaism. And so they were kind of lumping them together. And the Jews are like, no, no, no. We don't want you thinking about us when you think about them because we don't want to lose our privileges. And so they start slandering the Christians and making up things essentially about them so that the Roman government would know they, they have no part in us. Keep them separate. And they would say things like, these, these folks are cannibalistic because they partake in the body and the blood of Jesus. And they say it. And that these people are subversively working against the emperor. And they aren't participating in civic life in the way that you would desire them to, the way that we desire them to. They're off there on their own. And so they'd stand against the Christians. So Jesus calls them out for being a synagogue of Satan. They're working in cahoots with the devil, and that's indeed what they were doing. Things were exceptionally difficult for the church in Smyrna. In the midst of all of that, Jesus says there at the beginning of verse 9, I know. Before he goes into all this different persecution they're suffering, he says, I know. I know what you're going through. I know what the circumstance is. I know that it's difficult. I know that it's painful. I know that there's trouble. I know that you're in poverty. I know that you're being faithful. I might be, I know. And had an additional sense in the fact that it wasn't just that there was this, these words that were given. It's also, did you see what verse 8, again, remember what it said about that address? What did it pull forward? It said the fact that Jesus had died. 
He knew what they were going through. All the most difficult of things that they would face, he'd already faced by going to the cross, and that would have encouraged them. Friends, whatever it is that you're going through, you need to recognize you're not going through it alone either because God comes to you. Jesus comes to you, and he reaches out, and he says, I know. I understand where you are. I understand your pain. You're not in it alone. I know our first desire oftentimes is to be delivered from whatever our suffering is, but sometimes that isn't actually God's perfect plan for us, just to be as quickly delivered as possible. Our purpose on this earth is not to live as comfortable a life as possible. Our purpose is to live as faithful a life as possible. And sometimes that's going to require us to walk through circumstances that are difficult and painful and hard. But the fact of the matter is, those are the circumstances in which we have the opportunity to give the greatest glory to God. As we stand strong in the midst of the most difficult circumstances that come our way, as we continue to give glory to God, even in the midst of the challenges that come into our lives, we are demonstrating that He's everything, that He's our all, that He is worth serving regardless of what comes our way. And actually, we come to recognize that it's through those things that we have the greatest opportunity to give Him glory. And it's through those things and standing strong in the midst of it and continuing to give glory to His name that that's going to be the most powerful witness that you have around you. It's when those difficult circumstances come that all of a sudden it like ramps up your ability and the power that you have to speak into the circumstances of lives around you and see people put their own faith and their own trust in Jesus as a result. Friends, Jesus knows. And he's using that for his glory and for your good to walk in fellowship with him. Remember, it's the poor, suffering church in Smyrna that's praised in the self-serving, self-righteous church in Laodicea that is criticized, chastised. Don't ever forget that you're not alone in your struggle. Secondly, when persecution comes, you need not fear. You need not fear what is ahead. You can't read Revelation and miss the fact that God is trying to prepare his people for suffering. We've seen this several times already in this letter. We kind of keep coming back to this theme because it keeps coming up. And even right here in our passage, we saw it in verse 9, we were just looking at it, and we see here it again in verse 10, it says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. This is a dose of realism for the church. Jesus doesn't tell them, to, don't fear what might come your way. He says, don't fear what will come your way. He's saying, It's coming. You can anticipate it. Now, I don't understand why there are some people who seem to go through all kinds of suffering and difficulty, and why there are other people it seems like they hardly go through anything at all. I don't completely get why that is. I do know of one person who says that he refuses to pray and thank God for how little suffering he's had in his life because he's afraid that if he does so, that God's going to wake up and say, oh, you're right, you haven't had too much. Zap! You know, something like that. Now, I don't really think that's how God operates, 
I don't think he's keeping some scale up in heaven that says, well, you haven't had enough suffering yet, so I'm going to get you. You're next. I don't think that's the way it works. However, I do know that God allows suffering for a time and for a purpose. Peter says that it refines us. The scriptures talk often about how it strengthens us and matures us in our faith and causes us to lean on God. It has a way of stripping away the baggage, of stripping away the diversions that can so easily creep in. And it wakes us up. And it causes us to ask the question, where am I? How am I moving forward? Am I where I need to be? Is there a way I can walk more closely with God? And it gets our attention. You know how you can kind of get coasting for a while? And all of a sudden, before you know it, you're kind of off the track and you're going off in some weird direction away from God. To get woken up is the most gracious thing that he could do to draw you back. Jesus even says it's a test that Satan is allowed to bring against the church so that it might be examined, so that it might be tested. But he's not given free reign to just wreak whatever havoc he wants to wreak. It says here that it lasts 10 days. Now, some people say, well, that's, that's exactly 10 days that he's talking about. Other people say, well, no, it's another one of those numbers in Revelation that can be understood to be symbolic, where it's just talking about, about completion or the complete circumstance that God has in store for us. And either way, the main point is that the duration is under God's control. He's overseeing whatever opposition comes into life, the life of his people, the life of his church, to see that it always serves, even though he doesn't always bring those things, that it would serve his purposes and not serve the purposes of Satan or some other opposing force or power that God is in control. That's why he says at the beginning of verse 10, do not fear. Earlier, beginning of verse 9, he says, I know. I know where you are. I know what you're going through. Here he says, yes, difficulty, suffering, persecution is still a real thing, but do not fear. Don't fear. Even though we shouldn't be surprised if oppression and persecution persecution comes our way, and even though our desire and our prayer might be that it doesn't erupt against us, there's no need to fear the possibility of it coming. For even if it does, it'll not be outside of God's perfect love. It will not be outside of God's perfect care. It'll give us another opportunity to demonstrate our faithfulness to Him. Just a couple of years ago, right there in Smyrna, which is now Izmir, but right there, there were two men, Turkish men, who were killed because they converted from Islam to Christianity and because they were proselytizing with the gospel and they saw some people come to faith. They were killed for their faith. The wife of one of them would say later, I have no regrets that we lived out our faith boldly and praise God for the people who came to faith I see my family as victorious. As you think about what's ahead, pray for your own courage to stand strong in the midst of whatever it is that comes your way. I don't know what it's going to be. I don't know if we're going to walk into circumstances that are going to get more and more and more and more and more difficult. It appears as though that's probably on its way. How far, how far will it get in our lifetimes? I don't know. 
but things are turning those corners. They're moving. Pray for your own boldness, that you'd be willing to speak up, that you'd be willing to eschew this idea that I need to guard myself. I need to be quiet at certain times, lots of times, so that I don't, so I don't lose the favor of these people, so I don't miss out on my opportunity for advancement in the company or the accumulation of wealth. Pray for yourself and your boldness. Also, as you think about it, pray for, pray for those people around you, those people around the world who are suffering persecution for their faith today in ways that we don't. Thirteen people every day are killed for their faith in Jesus in our world. Pray for them. Pray for their families, that they stand strong, that their witness would be bold, and people are coming to faith because of their testimony. And don't fear. Don't fear for your children. Yes, I know, you look around and you see all of the things that are happening, all the corners that are being turned, the way that things are moving away from biblical values, and it seems to be going faster and faster and faster than it ever has before. And I look around at that, and I wonder, what it's, what's it going to be like as my kids continue to grow? And then I've got this precious granddaughter who's on the scene now as well, who, by the way, whenever I walked up to her, she's in a phase right now. Whenever I walk up, doesn't matter who's holding her, she reaches out her arms to me. <laughs> I'm telling you, she has me so tightly wrapped around her finger, it is not even funny. But what about her? What about your great-grandchildren? What about for them? I think about this. Kellen and I, we talk about this. You know what the scriptures say? They say, don't fear. Yes, pray about the days to come. Yes, by all means, prepare your family in faith. And then don't fear what is coming. Because just as Jesus has you in his hands, he's got your kids, and he's got your grandkids and your great-grandkids, and just as he cares for you, he's going to care for them. And the fact of the matter is, if he's in Jesus' hands, if they're in Jesus' hands, they're in far better hands than what you can manipulate through your own engineering of things or through your own fear. It's going to accomplish nothing. God is going to care for them. So do not fear. That's the message to all of us because God will provide. This is a context that says there are troubles coming, but I know and do not fear. That's good news. One more thing. When persecution comes, you will overcome through faithfulness. As we saw last week, each of the messages to these churches concludes with a solution or an action step with a, a call to hear, and then with the reward. And that's the same thing that's going on right here as well. Let me show it to you. Verse 10, the end of verse 10, it picks it up. First of all comes the solution or the action. He says, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Then the call to hear. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Then the reward. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. There are two deaths. 
The first one is the physical death that we all die. And Jesus is calling us to be faithful to that death, whether that would come just through some natural circumstances or whether that would come because of some intense persecution that might come against you because of your faith. He says, stand strong. And the one who does stand strong in their faith, he says, will receive the crown of life, which is essentially saying the well done of Jesus, eternal life in heaven that's the first death. The second death is a spiritual death that results in the eternal separation from Jesus. And Jesus promises that the second death cannot touch the believer in Jesus. It is nothing that you have to be concerned for. It is nothing that you have to fear, but it will be the experience of all who reject him. Jesus also taught about persecution when he was here on earth during his first advent, you know, Christmas, and then he grows and then he's got his earthly ministry here. He taught about persecution, actually on multiple occasions. On one of those occasions, here's what he said. He said, and do not fear those. Here we go again. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. He's saying that the death of the body, while it's tragic, is not the ultimate loss. The ultimate loss is being separated from God for eternity because of a lack of faith. And so he says, stand strong, stay faithful, whatever the cost might be. There's a man by the name of Polycarp. He was a disciple of John, this John, the one who's writing this letter. And he ends up becoming the pastor or the bishop of Smyrna, this same church. He's the pastor now. This is a generation or two after this letter would have been circulated, just a little bit later. And he's a guy who is very righteous. He's one who would refuse to bow down to the idols that were still there in Smyrna at this time. He refuses to give in, and the proconsul comes to him, and he demands that he would recant, and he refuses to recant, and so he arrests him, and he takes him into the theater there in Smyrna, thousands and thousands of people who are there, and they're all out for his head, for Polycarp's head, because of his faith in Jesus, and the proconsul says, I'm going to give you another opportunity. I want you to declare, away with the atheists. Now, here's what you need to understand. It's the Christians that were considered to be the atheists. Because people were looking around and they didn't have any little trinkets. They didn't have any little idols that they were bowing down to. So in their minds, it's like, well, you guys don't worship anybody. Away with the atheists. They demanded that Polycarp would declare. And so he stood in front of all of these people in the theater, knowing that they essentially are the atheists, and he spreads his hand out over them and he says, Away with the atheists! Funny guy. But the proconsul is still demanding that he would bow down. He says, Reproach Christ, and I will set you free. Polycarp replied, Eighty-six years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? Well, then I'll throw you to the wild animals. Polycarp said, Call them. It's unthinkable for me to repent from what is good to turn to what is evil. Well, if you despise the animals, then I'll have you burned. Polycarp replied, You threaten me with fire which burns for an hour and then extinguished. 
But you know nothing of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why are you waiting? Bring on whatever you want. And so they tied him to a stake and they burned him alive. And when tradition says that actually the winds came up and it blew the fires away so that it wasn't consuming him, they took out their swords and they ran him through. And he became the first Christian martyr that we're aware of outside of the Bible. Where do you get that kind of courage that stands strong in that way, even in the face of such persecution and such tribulation? Well, I'll tell you, it comes from understanding that life is not found in the accumulation of wealth or possessions or comforts or ease. It's found in putting your faith and trust and conviction in Jesus Christ, whatever the cost. That's where it's found. How often do we run off after these other things to fill ourselves up with what we think is going to be so important for us that simply will not, it cannot last. And we're sacrificing that which can last for eternity in order to run after those things. Why do we do this? Because of our self-focus. Because of our self-centeredness. Because we're refusing to acknowledge the grand scheme of who Jesus is and who Jesus came to be in our lives. And we've bought into this idea that we can run after all of these other things and then one day, thankfully, because we have salvation in Jesus, that now everything's going to be fine. It doesn't matter at all how we live. It does matter how you live. How are you preparing yourself for those days when suffering and difficulty does come? All of the resources there for us to be preparing ourselves in the moment faithfully. And Jesus says, for the one who does, I will give the crown of life. What is it, where is it, that you need to take a priority and turn it in a different direction so that Jesus might look on you one day and say, I see people like those I saw in Smyrna. I see you as one who is standing strong in the midst of all of what is swirling around you, unafraid to speak up, unconcerned about what that might cost you in order to glorify Jesus. May we not be people who are willing to shrink back. Let's live in such a way to receive the crown of life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, It's so easy to get distracted. It's so easy to get caught up in what everything around us is saying is important. To run after this, to run after wealth, to run after possessions, to run after power and position, to run after the things that so many people around us in the world are seeing as the number one pursuit. And to run after them is to run ourselves into a place, a real place, of torment, a place of separation from you. Father, convict us today. 
Give us a sense in our heart and in our mind right now in this moment of what a passage like this requires of us. To be bold with our faith. To be bold in what we believe. To be bold in being willing to speak up for you regardless of what somebody might think. Regardless of what they might come in their mind to believe about us. How bad can it be if they believe that we're sold out for you? And one day, perhaps, they'll come to the place where they recognize the significance of what was going on in your life. May even lead them to bow their own knee. That's why we're here. Father, give us the courage we need to be the people that you've called us to be, like those in Smyrna, receiving the crown of life, living faithfully, whatever the cost. Give us the courage to be those people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.